Hey, man. How's it going? I just posted this video. Another Trump lawyer bites dust. Do, do, do. Another one bites dust. Hey! Wheels of Justice said I predicted that Jeffrey Clark is going to lose his legal license. Do, do, do. Another one bites dust. Hey! Wheels of Justice <laughs> said I predicted that Jeffrey Clark is going to lose his legal license. Do, do, do. I think Ben might like dogs. Oh, and it's a Midas touch. It's a dust. Hey! Wheels of Justice said I predicted that Jeffrey Clark is going to lose. Okay, I put it on wheels. Let's see what's new in Midas Touch. Okay, major filings and orders are made in Trump federal criminal case. Stealing a document in a federal investigation in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1519 and a false statement concealment scheme in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1001A1 count 36. Defendants Trump and Nauta are each charged with making false statements in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1001A2 counts 37 and 38 respectively. It goes on to say that the government is ready to provide unclassified discovery to the defense. The discovery materials include sensitive and confidential information including the following personal identifiable information covered by rule 491 of the federal rules of criminal procedure information Another that reveals sensitive but unclassified investigative techniques non-public information relating to potential witnesses and other third parties including grand jury transcripts and exhibits and recordings of witness interviews financial information of third parties third party location information and personal information contained on electronic electronic devices and accounts, but this is the key statement right here. The materials also include information pertaining to ongoing investigations, the disclosure of which could compromise those investigations and identify uncharged individuals. As a result, the government proposes protections against the dissemination of discovery materials and the sensitive information that they contain. Accompanying this motion is a proposed protective order that will protect against unauthorized disclosure of sensitive information while allowing the defense to use the materials in preparation of their defense. For the foregoing reasons, the government respectfully requests that this court enter a Rule 16D1 protective order limiting for disclosure of discovery materials. So the fact that Special Counsel Jack Smith filed that first, he did not file a recusal motion under the uh, two federal statutes where he could seek recusal. Um, so he has not sought a recusal yet. Um, we can glean that by the fact that he filed that substantive motion for a protective order. Um, but we can also uh, adduce from this that Judge Eileen Cannon did not make an unlawful order. She did the right thing. And on docket number uh, 25, uh, she issued a paperless order um, that pursuant to 28 U.S.C. section 636 and the magistrate rules of the local rules of the Southern District of Florida, the government's motion for a protective order 
2023 is hereby referred to Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt for appropriate disposition. Signed by Judge Eileen M. Cannon. Now, arguably, she could have ignored the law here, and I think that's why Special Counsel Jack Smith kind of planted, if you will, that little trap there to see if she was going to make an unlawful order right away regarding a protective order that is not controversial at all. And at least with respect to that protective order, Judge Aileen Cannon made the appropriate ruling, referred it to uh, the magistrate judge. Also, looking at the docket, one of the things we learn is special counsel Jack Smith's team, who are the top espionage lawyers, the top uh, national security lawyers in the country, period, full stop. Special counsel Jack Smith's team, you can see from the filings that were made, includes Jay Bratt as counselor to special counsel, and of course, Jay Brad is the chief of counterintelligence and export control section of the National Security Division. Went to Harvard Law, Brandeis undergrad, um, and had a spent his pretty much his whole career in the national security uh, sector uh, of of the law and is the top position in the DOJ. Um, You also have Julie Edelstein um, as the senior assistant special counsel. Um, Big appointment there. Um, And Julie Edelstein, lots of experience. She's the Deputy Chief, Counterintelligence and Export Control Section, National Security Division. Um, She clerked before the Court of Appeals, worked at some of the top firms in the country, um, and went to UPenn uh, Law and Yale undergrad. Also, Karen Gilbert is the Assistant Special Counsel, and David Harbach is Assistant Special Counsel, the most formidable team that exists in the country, not just in the Department of Justice, but of um, uh, public uh, lawyers and private lawyers. I mean, this is like, think about this as like the dream team. So that's what we learned um, there. And then finally, with respect to the protective order itself, um, there are designations for attorney. Given a new lease on life, thanks to Dr. Harris's Rachel Maddow brings the house down with Trump Thursday afternoon, Trump got indicted in the Manhattan DA case. And she very kindly offered to, to do a pickup shot on Friday morning. But I'm glad that we scheduled this interview after Trump's latest indictment because not exactly a topic you can skate by. So, uh, so first Although that, you never know. By the time we're ready to post this, there might be another one. Might be another one, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So on that topic, is there any planet on which this redounds to Trump's benefit or is that just wish casting by the right? Because that's the, that's the message that they're trying to convey here. I mean, sure, definitely. You know, I mean, we've, we've seen, we have, we now have experience with a former president and current presidential candidate being indicted. It happened two months ago to the same guy. And so we can actually look at the real world impact of that and see that it does appear to have benefited his poll numbers, benefited him um, in a way that maybe stepped on the um, sort of uh, stepped on the launches of his uh, Republican presidential um, um, rivals. At least in the sense that it kept him in the center of the news and it gave them all awkward questions that there's no right answer to from a Republican political perspective uh, in terms of what they think about his criminal liability. So, yes, we've seen it help him already. In the long run, is it a good thing to potentially be in prison and to be in trial and multiple venues for serious criminal charges? (laughs) Maybe, maybe, but I mean, if it's going to help him in the long run, it means that in Republican politics, 
it's an asset to be a criminal. And that is a really, that's a really radical political party. I mean, that's, that, that then says less about the candidate and his uh, alleged criminality than it does about the party that wants to reward something like that. If that makes somebody go, go up in the esteem of your party, then your party is, is choosing that as one of its core values. And that's, that's, I mean, I feel like this is a moment not so much for Trump. Like, we kind of know what Trump is and who Trump is. Um, it'll be interesting to see this play out, but this is a real question for the Republican Party. This is, is this your standard bearer? Is this who you think should represent your party to the country and the country to the world? I do think that they already have answered that question so many times over that, you know, it's just kind of us imposing our views onto them by virtue of asking, is this really who you are? Could this be who your standard bearer is? Is this, you know, when, when you did the act of Hollywood tape, when you did you know, all of all of everything that he's done is me come back and said, how could this how could this be someone that you're willing to, to prop up? And every time they've answered the same way. So I think, you know, we're imposing our our values on them by virtue of asking, but I think in terms of their values, they've already answered that question. Yeah, but I mean moments like this, you know, real benchmark moments. You got a you know, three inch headline, you know, and there's front page all in that and newspapers and everything, and it'll be the, the moment in history and what we do here will be you know, studied generations later in terms of how the country reacted to this. But I think you can also think about it in terms of the way that other countries around the world, other political actors around the world look at this. And if we are going to have one of the two governing parties in the United States led by somebody who is potentially going to be governing from jail, um, or <laughs> the Equilibrium after moments of 
um, of chaos. I don't feel like we've seen radical change in the cable news landscape specifically um, over the course of my career. I think things change a little, but not a lot. Um, and so, so we'll see how it shakes out in the long run. Your face, dude. <laughs> and giving someone the floor, right? You also don't have to effectively make them um, a host or an anchor or a, a character in your on your on your air. You, you cover them. You don't. Um, you cover them. You don't hand them the mic. I've had to reconcile with the fact that you know I, I've had issues in terms of like the the fawning, you know, overbearing coverage of Donald Trump before, and I think the difference that I try. To do when I'm, you know, when I'm doing my coverage of him on my YouTube channel, is to basically ask people, as opposed to just giving him a platform, a megaphone to spew his bullshit, uh, are you leaving after watching my broadcast, coming away with more inaccurate information or more accurate information? So you yeah. can you can cover him. It's not the act of covering him. We're not going to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that he doesn't exist. But um, by virtue of doing it, are you are you leaving coming coming away more ill informed or better informed by virtue of listening to what you said? Yes, and I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that sort of discipline is not that hard to teach. It's not that hard to explain. It's a easy to recognize principle that people could adopt without too much graduate school, you know. Um, and the idea is, you know, if if he has said something, if he has proposed something about, you know, he's proposed to ban the entry into the United States of people who are Muslims. You know what I mean? Like, you can 
cover that, and there's ways to cover it that absolutely add to people's understanding about what is important about the fact that he has covered it. You don't necessarily need to play his speech in which he denigrates Muslims and purports to justify what he's doing. What might be helpful is to talk about how this matches other types of leaders in other countries or in other eras who have proposed these sorts of things, what it might mean, why this, why that is an unconstitutional thing, what will happen when that gets into the court system, uh, and what it means to Muslim communities to have this sort of rhetoric out there. You can, you can cover all of those things in a substantive way without giving him the platform to advance the kind of attacks on those communities that he's trying to effectuate by floating that policy. It's just, you know, it's, it's, I think your, your principle there is, is simple and true. You know, I, I can't imagine a world where Trump actually gained support by virtue of being federally indicted, which is what he was here. And that's considering the guy already has enough issues winning an election, but now having to contend with a federal indictment um, might seem to suggest that his support would actually contract if he was to run in a general election. Would the rest of the Republican Party be better served not to rally around the guy, which is, of course, what they're doing? Or do they just have no choice here, given the hold that Trump has on the base? Oh, fuck. What happened? I mean, political parties exist for a reason, right? We don't just have people freelance and run on their own without attachment to parties, even though some independent candidates try every now and again. That hasn't generally been our system. And that's in part because the parties are supposed to do something. The parties are supposed to have a role in vetting and um, elevating appropriate candidates who stand for their values, who represent not just the, the best of what the country has to offer as a governing class, but specifically what the party believes ought to be um, sort of their, their best shot at, at leadership. And so the Republican Party abdicating its role and saying we are totally neutral among all the candidates um, and whoever wants to run, whoever likes that, if, if enough people like them, then great, we will attach ourselves to that candidate in a value-neutral way. We have nothing to say about it. I mean, it's just, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it's within living memory, you know, the Republican Party detached itself aggressively from David Duke, who was, you know, running in, in Louisiana. Um, and it made a difference to have the Republican president at the time say, you know what, that's not who we are, and that's not the kind of candidate who we are attached to, and no Republican should support them. I mean, that's happened before, you know, even in, in more recent living memory. You might remember the issues with um, Congressman Steve King of Iowa, who was getting more and more aggressive and overt in his white supremacism. Um, and this era's Republican Party said, you know, Steve King, you, you can't, you can't actually function in Congress anymore. We're effectively de-endorsing you. We're taking you off your committees, and um, we're going to fund a challenger to you. We don't, we don't support you. So parties exist for a reason that is not just fundraising. The parties exist to vet candidates at a very basic know, level. Um, that we don't have people who are totally inappropriate to the job, uh, aspiring for the job with the party support. And so, you know, they can decide, they can make a, they can make a substantive decision about Donald Trump. They've decided not to, um, but it is within the realm of possibility, and I think that's a question that probably should be asked more, rather than assuming that they're powerless. Yeah, and I would like to add that 
another responsibility of these parties is inherently is is to win elections and have some type of a platform that would lend itself to garnering more support. And the irony of what's happening now with these parties by virtue of seeing that they're espousing positions that are losing them support, but still opting instead to pretend that they've won, even despite not doing the work that it takes to win them, um, and just pretending that they won in Texas and, and, and Georgia and Michigan and Arizona and Wisconsin, um, is kind of is kind of so antithetical to what the point of this all is, which is, you know, again, to propose an agenda that will garner them those votes and then and then govern effectively. But now they're doing the opposite. They're proposing agendas that are so extreme. They're proposing abortion bans and LGBT bans and interstate travel bans and foot bans and vowing to cut earned benefits and not doing the work of making themselves accountable to the people that they're supposed to represent because they feel like they don't need you anymore because when push comes to shove and it comes to election time, they're just going to say that they won anyway. And that kind of is like, for the first time, we're seeing like what happens when a party kind of goes off the rails from what it's supposed to be doing inherently. Well, I, I think there, there is a, I mean, just in political science terms, there's a relationship between the unpopularity of your agenda and the degree to which you want democratic accountability for your policies, right? Like, if you want to do stuff that's really unpopular, you don't want to be democratically accountable uh, for the reaction to those policies. And so, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a surprise that we're seeing counter-majoritarian move, like, you know, in Ohio, where Republicans are saying, oh, people can no longer vote about what's in the Constitution, or we're going to make it harder for people to vote about what's in the Constitution, because if we let Ohio voters do that, they're going to undo our abortion ban. So therefore, we'll make it harder for people to cast that kind of a vote at a popular referendum. I mean, you, end, you, you play with the mechanisms of feedback when you don't like the feedback that you're getting. And you can do that, you know, you can sort of game the system in the short run, but in the long run, if you're doing stuff that people don't want you to do, then you're going to have a problem in a democracy. And either you then try to undo democracy or you adjust so that you're more in line with the will of the people. As far as the 2024 race goes, we've now watched the oh, blow up to the point that we're effectively reliving 2016, with the irony being that all the Republicans are running, presumably because they think that Trump shouldn't be the next president, and yet something else in history, especially, you know, something from another, not just another era, but maybe another place that can give us a frame of reference um, in terms of what it's looked like when something like this has happened before. And so episode one um, is, a, there's a parallel in history in another country of something very much like the January 6th attack on Congress that happened in another country. Um, and in that other country, it actually worked. It did stop the transfer of power. It did install a pro-fascist um, right-wing government to replace a elected center-left government. Um, so it's that's helpful to me to understand these things. And, you know, I, I think there's, 
there's a way in which there are processes in our political system that um, by nature recur. Like we're gonna have a field of candidates running for a major party nomination every four years on both sides. Like that's just gonna happen. And so um, that is less a sort of historical echo than it is like, you know, is there a learning curve? <laughs> the last time this very unusual sort of pro-authoritarian um, Republican populist candidate was on the ballot, look at what happened when there were 16 other Republicans running against him. Okay, well now he's on the ballot again. There's going to be at least 10 other Republicans who are running against him. Have they learned from the last time this happened in 2016? Now, they had a dress rehearsal uh, in terms of what it means to run against him. I do think, actually, that there, if you listen to the way that some of the candidates are talking about this primary, it's clear kind of who gets the lesson of what went wrong in 2016 and who didn't. All the candidates who, when asked about Trump, say, I don't want to talk about Trump. I'd like to talk about what I bring to the table. Yeah, you can tell they they were asleep in 2016. Um, the candidates who actually are trying to run by running against him, by saying here's why he shouldn't be the nominee, I think that's the obvious lesson of 2016. And so few people were willing to do that in a sustained way in 2016. We'll see if they can sustain it in 2024. Well, we'll see if the Asa Hutchinsons out there uh, <laughs> catch fire in the Republican... Uh, I mean, but, so, but what do you think about Asa Hutchinson versus... Chris Christie, though, right? So, like, Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie are both going to be minus one, you know, less than 1% candidates, but both of them want to contend enough to mount anti-Trump candidacies yeah. and to keep anti-Trump attacks alive in that primary process. Right. Not a bad strategy. No. Um, particularly if everybody else is going to be going, oh, well, you know, I, I don't think that we should be persecuting him, but I, I would instead would rather cut the deficit. You know, I mean... <laughs> yeah. Let's finish off with this. Um, you know, I listened to the pilot episode, which again will be out on June 12th. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, like Thank you said, you. it explores the similarities between January 6th and another date where a coup to overturn, overtake the government actually did work. Uh, I know that episode two is going to focus on what DeSantis is doing in Florida um, and that that was tried before, which I'm very excited to listen to. Was there an episode in particular that you're especially partial to? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's going to be, it's a limited series, so this is just six episodes, um, and the first one comes out Monday, June 12th, they'll come out every Monday thereafter, and I don't want to give you the topics of the other ones, because I feel like part of it is, like, there's, there's definitely a spoiler effect in terms of doing this thing, but... I mean, I, I, you know, I, I kind of love all of them. The first, the first one, there's a reason that we put it first. No, we didn't know that the former president was going to be indicted <laughs> um, uh, before, you know, the, I guess he's going to be arraigned the day after the first episode comes out, which is just crazy timing. Um, but in terms of contending with radical movements that are trying to undo democratic institutions like yeah this is helpful so i think we ha we sort of hit it on the we sort of hit the bullseye in terms of modern resonance so i'm happy really happy that that one's first but i hope that all of them i mean again the the idea is if history doesn't appeal to everybody in terms of contextualizing what's going on in the news but to the extent that it is something that works for you and that helps you understand what's going on all of these historical analogies that we're going to bring to the fore through this podcast i, I think they they can just make us calmer and more confident and better informed with contending with things that can otherwise sort of feel overwhelming. You know, it's if, if you are overwhelmed and, and, and particularly if you're outraged by what's happening with DeSantis targeting the LGBTQ community 
in Florida and, and, and the Republicans are helping him do that there. I do think it's helpful to hear episode two and of Daily News where we talk about how Florida conservatives did that before and what happened to them um, when they really went too far. Well, we'll leave it there. That seems like a great place to stop. So, of course, you can check out Rachel Maddow and MSNBC. Trust me, you will want to download Deja News wherever you listen to podcasts. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great. Thank you so much. This is fun. We mentioned that tumultuous week at the top of the show, so who better to turn to than our CBS News political panel with us this morning? Political correspondent Caitlin Huey Burns, congressional correspondent Nicole Kelly, and senior investigative correspondent Catherine Harridge. Thank you all for being here this morning. Terrific to have you here. CBS News correspondent on tumultuous week in Washington. Can you react to former Attorney General Bill Barr and his statement that he believes Trump could be indicted on the January 6th investigation? Well, I took notes during your interview, and what jumped out to me was his statement that this was not government overreach in the Florida indictment, that this was self-inflicted, fundamentally flawed, he said of the former president, and that it was reckless conduct. And the reason Bill Barr's comments matter and And may even stand for some is that he's been attorney general twice. And when he served then-President Trump, he was a staunch defender during the Russia collusion allegations. And what we know now from the special counsel's findings, John Durham, is that the FBI, when there was evidence that conflicted with that narrative, they discounted it or they willfully ignored it. And as we know, that's completely inconsistent with the FBI's assessment as being the preeminent law enforcement agency. Nicole, you listened to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. As the whole Republican presidential race heats up and Trump's conduct's in the spotlight. But you're on Capitol Hill day in, day out, talking to congressional Republicans there, often to Speaker McCarthy. How was the response to the indictment just days ago in the arena unfolding in your view? I think what struck me about what the governor said is multiple times he described this indictment as disturbing and then ultimately said that he believes that the former president's conduct was indefensible, yet on Capitol Hill you pretty much have just the opposite with congressional Republicans largely rallying and defending uh, the former president. I mean, take for instance, I asked Speaker McCarthy just last week, was it a good look to have these boxes stacked? in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, and his response to me was a bathroom door locked. So, I mean, that is the defense that some Republicans are putting forth. That being said, I do think you are starting to see some daylight between Republicans, even among House Republicans. For instance, Ken Buck just recently said that if the former president is convicted, he cannot support him. In 2024, you look over at the Senate side, people like John Thune, one of the top Republicans in the Senate, uh, saying that, you know, look, we've lost in 18, we've lost in 20, We've lost in 22. This is really not a winning strategy to stick with a guy like the former president. To take what Nicole just said, Caitlin, she used the phrase daylight. Is there daylight emerging in the presidential race? You've been talking to Senator Tim Scott, covering former Ambassador Nikki Haley and so many others. How is this going to affect the Republican presidential race beyond Governor Christie? What I think is so remarkable is if you take a step back, you had this week the Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination indicted, charged with mishandling national security by the federal government. You would think that would be a huge opening for Republicans who are vying to go uh, uh, and have that position uh, to go after him. And yet, we haven't seen a real 
co cohesive strategy on Two. behalf of Republicans to take down Donald Trump. You've seen a lot of Republicans Trump get into everybody's the race. FBI the FBI files. The is that they do sense that there is an opening of vulnerability with Trump, but they are, you know, loath to cross him and especially his supporters. So you saw this week, as you said, um, maligning the Justice Department, going a little bit farther. Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence went a little bit farther than they have been to condemn what the allegations suggest. But they are looking at the numbers here, and our CBS polling shows that 76 percent of Republican primary voters think that this are more concerned that this was um, tell a your story in the indictment. comments below. So the question moving forward is that How Trump the, fucked your the life course of this primary is really going to be defined by Trump's legal troubles. We have, as you were talking to Bill Barr about, um, the January 6th investigation, the investigation in Georgia. As this unfolds, does this boost him, or does do the candidates look at this and say, time to go after him? They haven't reached that conclusion yet. Speaking about a question moving forward, Catherine, who's going to represent the former president? So much chaos inside of his legal team. Well, they haven't ruled out adding even more lawyers, especially down in Florida, as they address this indictment in that state. What I learned in my conversations over the weekend with sources close to his legal team is that as a threshold issue, they're likely anticipating some limited discovery to kind of get under the hood of the special counsel's case and the strength of the evidence. And then the other two top-tier targets are a motion to dismiss based on allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. You're familiar with that through your own reporting. And then the second is to get excluded these notes from Evan Corcoran, the former defense attorney, which are at the heart of this obstruction case. And the thing that I learned this weekend, which was new to me, is that these notes are more than 40 pages in length. So I think it is fair to say in this indictment, we're seeing a snapshot of those conversations and not quite the full picture. Something we don't have a snapshot of yet is Georgia. Former Attorney General Barr, Nicole, he seemed to wave it off a little bit, but you've been covering this for months, and we've heard that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has a charging decision that's going to be announced sometime maybe late July, maybe early August. Take us inside the latest on Georgia. Well, I think Fulton County definitely is preparing, and you know we saw that in a number of ways by Fonnie Willis coming out in two letters stating that she intends to announce these charging decisions at some point this summer between July 18th, September 1st, even nearing that time frame perhaps into uh, early August. But uh, this is a multifaceted investigation. Obviously, at the heart of it is an investigation into election appearance in the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. It also deals with the issue of a false slate of electors, which we learned recently, uh, some of them accepted uh, an immunity deal. And it also dives into potential data breaches uh, that existed in other counties in Georgia. So this is a very sprawling case. Uh, what we do know, though, is that uh, you know the special grand jury completed its report earlier this year. Uh, what they found was no widespread evidence of fraud, but they do believe that some of the individuals may have committed perjury. We also know that some of the jurors have since spoken out since this report has wrapped up, suggesting that indictments are possible. So uh, that is why I think you see the uh, district attorney trying to lay that groundwork uh, for when she makes that decision. Georgia officials tell me when and if the time comes, they believe they're ready. So, um, I appreciate that update because it's sometimes hard to keep track. There's the New York investigation. There's two special counsels, January 6th in records, and then, of course, what's going on in Georgia. But as much as it seems to dominate the news, 
Trump and his legal challenges, that's not the only story right now in American politics. It's just a year ago, Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer. And when you listen to President yeah, Biden on the campaign justices. show, this beginning, should have been removed. You know, Vice President Kamala Harris. They should have made it fun. You're, you're about abortion rights. And so Squeaky despite all the, the Trump grease. frenzy, abortion rights, it does still seem to be front and center. What's your reporting on that? And they are deploying Kamala Harris to go to North Carolina later this week uh, to mark the anniversary. North Carolina, of course, just passed an abortion law uh, recently. Democrats certainly believe that this is an animating force, and they've seen that proven in Democratic politics. But what's interesting is that now that we're a year removed from the court decision, it kicked everything back to the states. The states decided their own laws. And now the real battle is in the state Supreme Court. And that's what we saw in Iowa this week. Um, we are are expecting a decision in South Carolina and in Florida. Um, and so that's the real front here in this next phase, and also why a lot of activists are looking at constitutional ballot measures in states. I just got back from Ohio doing some reporting on that as well. And what I think also, as you're looking at the primary landscape and Republican Party politics, we have seen them kind of struggle to define positions. But what's interesting now is that you're seeing Ron DeSantis really take an opportunity to go after Donald Trump from the right. Um, so as much as we're talking about the investigations and whether Republicans want to talk about them, DeSantis is just figuring this is an issue where he can uh, boast a more conservative agenda than the former president. Nicole, I just want to bounce off that with you. When you're on Capitol Hill and talking to congressional Republicans, someone like former Governor Christie often says, oh, a, a national abortion ban is never going to happen. There needs to be a consensus in the states first. But do you believe if the Freedom Caucus types in the House get more power, and maybe their allies in the Senate get more power, so that they would pursue a national abortion ban if it was a Republican-controlled Congress across the board. Well, like a I think caucus. it's possible, but I also think that the approach has been pretty fractured in Congress, where you have, you know, some are pushing for a six-week ban, some support a 15-week ban. Uh, and honestly, you know, since the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned, while there was a lot of hype at the beginning, is there going to be some type of national ban? We've really seen Republicans kind of push back off of that. If anything, it's Democrats that are really trying to keep this front and center. And next week, we know that House Democrats will will be introducing a discharge petition to try to restore abortion access, even if it's just a symbolic move. A lot to follow across all the beats. Oh, Couldn't yes. be luckier than to have all of you here Still to open your notebooks. Really appreciate you stopping by on a shit. Sunday. We'll be right back. Fascist bullshit. These documents, these individuals did not have security. And there's something very important also to add here. This is not just about retainment of classified material. It's also about an allegation of obstruction of an ongoing federal investigation. Very quickly, from page 21, you have conversations between Trump and his lawyer. Normally, in any case, we never have a prism into what attorneys are discussing with their clients. But in this case, the special counsel said to a federal judge, we believe a crime might have taken place in those confidential attorney-client conversations. We need that material. So Evan Why Corker, haven't Trump's they searched lawyer, his other properties? Turn over his voice notes, turn over his notebooks, and here's what they found. Trump told his lawyer, on May 23rd, 2022, according to this investigation and indictment. I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I don't want you looking through my boxes. Well, what happens if we just don't respond at all or don't play ball with the federal subpoena? Wouldn't it be better if we just told them that we don't have anything here? Well, look, isn't it better if there are no documents? 
This comes directly from evidence between a conversation, a conversation between Trump and his own lawyer that Trump never thought would get out. Well, it's out here in this indictment. To summarize, the former president, Donald Trump, is saying to his lawyer, let's just lie and say we don't have the document. Effectively, yes. He's saying, what can we do to evade a federal subpoena? Why is it that the attorney was forced to cooperate and turn over his notes? Well, we're all forced to comply when a federal judge says you have to turn over your notes. But this is called the crime fraud exception. They believe that criminal intent might have taken place in the attorney-client conversation. Might have now, taken place, as Catherine really? and Scott have been reporting, this aspect so? of the case could be something that's crucial in the coming weeks as the Trump team, as we've been told privately and from different sources, tries to challenge and dismiss this indictment. They'll say that maybe the federal judge and the special counsel overstretched, tried too hard to get all this material. But at the end of the day, because of the sensitivity of these documents, the special counsel, we're told from our federal government sources, is going to argue it was a necessity to break attorney-client privilege and get these documents. I want to bring in our senior investigative correspondent, Catherine Herridge, because you have been following this 14-month-long investigation from the beginning that is detailed here. There's also audio recordings of some of these conversations that the president had. What do we know about that? Well, here at CBS News, we've been able to confirm through a source with direct knowledge of the transcript that there was an audio recording at his club in Bedminster, New Jersey. It was the former president and then some colleagues. It was about an autobiography for a former aide. And in the course of that conversation, you hear this ruffling of papers on the audio tape, and he says, oh, if this record here, this could exonerate me. And we've been able to confirm. And I was told it was central to this indictment that he says, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. And this was a Pentagon memo, Nora, that was about attack plans for Iran. He describes it as very confidential, secret. But the reason this matters from the special counsel's point of view is that it's an admission, an acknowledgment that he had the power to declassify, but in this particular case, he understands almost a consciousness of guilt that this is a record that cannot be shared. And let's just, on this particular, let's, let's drive down on this Bedminster episode where there is that audio tape. Come this on, involved Ray. a moment in time when Donald Trump was agitated, angry at uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, because Milley had suggested that the President, Donald Trump, had wanted to attack Iran. And so Donald Trump was telling these individuals who were there, who were helping to write a book of Mark Meadows, well, no, it wasn't me, it was him. Here's the plans right here, correct? You, you nail it, Nora. Based on our reporting, we're learning today here at CBS News a lot about the motivation, the why. If you're just tuning into this, it seems like, so he had records at his house, were they classified? He says they weren't. Aren't they his papers? Why can't he have them? And the question, as a reporter, you always asks is, My okay, well, why did this happen? What was the motivation for Give Trump to have these documents? Two things document. we learned. One, he was angry about the Russia investigation, so he wanted to take some documents in January of 2021 back home to Mar-a-Lago. But in the summer of 2021, he starts doing some post-presidential interviews. And at that same time, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, is in the public profile a lot. He's being portrayed as someone who was heroic in the view of some of his admirers about how he handled January 6th, how he handled Trump's final days. So Trump's taking these interviews with reporters, talking to book authors. He didn't talk to us for our book, Peril, but he talked to a lot of other people. And in the course of these interviews, some of which were reported, he starts to say, bringing out documents and saying, 
Millie was wrong on this, Millie was wrong on that. I know because some of this stuff I have is classified and I have it right in front of you. And based on our conversations with sources close to Trump, Trump aides were looking at the reporters on the table going, he's talking about classified material. It is now on tape. And now Trump aides were called before the special counsel were forced to turn over audio tapes of Trump discussing classified material that he knowingly had. If you're a prosecutor, that's golden. I just want to make one point because as we look at this sort of through a broader prism of the kind of intelligence equities that were involved, there were equities that originated this information or were impacted by this classified information. So it lists seven agencies. Seven agencies in the U.S. intelligence community had information and intelligence that was impacted by what was retained, according to the special counsel at Mar-a-Lago. And they include the Central Intelligence Agency, so that's human spying, the Department of Defense, we just mentioned, the National Security Agency, this is electronic intelligence. Yeah, also chilled, as the National Geospatial us. Agency is the mapping agency, the National Reconnaissance Office is of the super secret spy satellites that we rely on, the Department of Energy, and the Department of State's their own Bureau of Intelligence and Research. So How many intelligence officers have died? Well, it's half of the entire intelligence community was impacted by the retention, the alleged retention of these records Look at this. by the former president. To build on Catherine's reporting here, page after page in this indictment shows foreign countries, allies and perhaps adversaries, their capabilities militarily in terms of intelligence possibly compromised by Donald Trump having these documents page in his home. Page. How many pages? Everything top secret top secret special handling it's only a tip of the iceberg whatever it is capabilities military whatever foreign intelligence, talk about top secret, see or hear about annotations from foreign intelligence officials and some of them are what's called specially compartmented information these are programs that literally are on a need-to-know basis people are read in and read off it's that highly classified i want to bring in scott mcfarland of course and all of these documents according to the indictment it alleges that sometimes they were kept in a ballroom this is a social club mar-a-lago is not a residence he does stay there it is a club there are people in and out of there they say also not only uh, in the ballroom a bathroom and a shower office space his bedroom and a storage room and granularly this charging document connects the movement and the organization of these records to Trump himself. It says he was personally involved with packing the boxes. He directed a storage room be cleared to move the boxes in. He had made this defense earlier that it was the U.S. General Services Administration that was packing up all these boxes. I had nothing to do with it. The charging documents make clear he did have something to do with it. But to emphasize Catherine's point on the next level, He's sharing, according to the prosecution here, these compartmentalized, secure documents with people who don't have security clearances, and they're not inside one of those secure, compartmentalized information facilities, one of those skiffs. It's happening right out in open space. Do you remember when the raid happened at Mar-a-Lago, and there was the spreading of all of those documents right, on the picture. floor, and former President Trump said, look at the mess the FBI made. But on page 14, there's an image of all the documents that were spilled onto the floor at Mar-a-Lago, and this aide, Walt Nada, takes a picture and says, look at what I found. And one of the documents he found, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but it's what's called Five Eyes Intelligence. This is intelligence that is shared with the United States by our closest allies. And the reason this matters, Nora, is that it's probably not our information. It's gathered by our friends. So it's not just a compromise for intelligence 
that's been owned and generated by us, but is from our allies. So it's the breaking or the weakening of those relationships potentially as well. So, and again, not just, of course, the taking of these documents, the sharing of them, but then the question about obstruction, of course, and not uh, returning them and obstructing this investigation. I want to bring in our CBS News legal analyst, Ricky Kleeman, who has been pouring through this as well. And Ricky, what stands out to you? just saying it has echoes of Watergate. What's that refrain about Watergate we've always heard? It's not just the crime, it's the cover-up. Cover and so much of this indictment is about steps Trump took, in the words of the special counsel, to corruptly scheme, to lie about the documents he had in hand. And to underscore the seriousness of what the former president of the United States is facing, you only have to move to the back of this indictment, where it talks about the max term of imprisonment for all of these different counts. For willful retention of national defense information, 10 years, a decade in prison, max term. For withholding a document, a record, 20 years. Conspiracy to obstruct justice, 20 years. This trial, if it happens, could take place during years in prison. of a presidential campaign next year, or maybe even after the former president wins the presidency again. Huh. Under federal law, you can technically serve in the presidency, even if you've been convicted of a crime. Even if you're in fucking prison and uh, for sedition, these, no. Uh, sorry to go back to the Evan Corcoran notes that they felt that they were not that damaging to him, that it was a discussion of the left and right boundaries of what was required under the subpoena. But just drilling down into page 34, what it states very specifically is that Trump suggested to attorney one to falsely represent to the FBI and the grand jury that he didn't have the documents. Then it says to conceal the records from this attorney, mm -hmm. then to suggest that the attorney hide or destroy the documents, which would be the destruction of evidence, and then also to say that he was fully cooperating with the grand jury. So the detail here, which we've never heard before, certainly from his attorneys. Evan Corker is a man we're going to be hearing a lot about in the coming months in, in this country because I carry around a reporter's notebook. It's small, it fits in your pocket. One thing we picked up in the course of this reporting is Evan Corcoran likes to write notes in large art school style sketchbooks. And he has a pile of these huge sketchbooks that are blank without the lines in them, and he takes meticulous notes about what Trump has said. And then he goes home at night, supposedly, and listens to vo records voice notes on his phone about what Trump told them behind the scenes. So you have someone who was hired by Trump not to be a showman, 
not to be a theatrical lawyer, but to really be a lawyer. And now the special counsel has everything, including testimony from Evan Corcoran about what Trump was saying and doing when he was issued with a subpoena. We are expected to hear from Jack Smith, the special counsel, at 3 o'clock today, and we will share that with you. Scott, you've also been looking through this. This case now has an official number for what it's worth. This historic case is case 23CR, criminal, 8101, and it has three initials at the end, AMC. That alludes to the judge to whom this case is assigned. That is Judge Eileen Cannon, whose name might ring a bell. She was the same Trump-appointed judge who helped navigate and oversee the challenges of the search warrant last year. Scathing so this case goes opinions to from the she 11th Circuit the about this kind. the courthouse nearest Mar-a-Lago. There was likely, I'm told, a random wheel run, a kind of a computer-mechanized judge selection process, but it is heavily weighted for cases in this part of Florida toward Judge Cannon's courthouse and ultimately to her. He appears Tuesday, 3 p.m. at the federal courthouse in Miami. They have it in Miami, I'm told, because it's larger. There's more security there. It has a bigger footprint. It can handle a personal appearance from the former president of the United States. An initial appearance happens at 3 p.m. He has to be there for that. There is likely to be an arraignment immediately after. He'll plead guilty or not guilty. They'll talk about release conditions. It could take just minutes, and we always underscore this. No cameras in the courthouse. No booking photos released by the feds, and it's possible he's brought to a private entrance. This all might be invisible on Tuesday. All right, Catherine Herridge, Scott McFarland, Robert Costa, thank you, Ricky Kleeman, as well. Donald Trump has been charged with willful retention of classified information, withholding a record, conspiracy, false statements, and obstruction, according to this 49-page indictment that was just unsealed. Uh, we are talking about significant prison time if Donald Trump is convicted. Our coverage will continue on CBS News streaming your local news. And tonight, we will have a full wrap-up and analysis on the CBS Evening News. This has been a CBS News special report. I'm Nora O'Donnell in Washington. A garden hose is like roadside assistance. Quality matters. So join AAA, America's most recommended roadside service. Donald in Washington. Welcome back. I'm Lana Zak. And I'm Elaine Quijano. And we have been watching a CBS News special report on the unsealing of the indictment in the former president's thoughts. He has been indicted on 37 felony counts related to the handling of sensitive documents found by the FBI at his Mar-a-Lago residence. The president is due in court next Tuesday. There is a lot to uh, dig into here. We want to bring in CBS News legal contributor Jessica Levinson to help us with that. Jessica, you've had a moment now to look at this weighty document, this indictment. Tell us about the charges. What sticks out to you? What sticks out to me is how we're dealing with the most sensitive documents that potentially put us and our allies at risk. I mean, what sticks out to me is that these aren't quote-unquote lower-level classified documents. These are documents that are, in some cases, paperwork. Put that down the drain. Documents the chicken turned off. The office, the and he shouldn't have had them in his house. This is so much. It's a good excuse. What you can one of the big things that sticks out to me. Another big thing here is that there is a recording where the former president apparently says, and this shows his state of mind, 
I could have declassified this while I was the president, but I didn't. Isn't that interesting? And it's secret. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here. But that shows his level of awareness, which I think will be part of this case. And then, of course, the other thing here is just the number of counts and how they all go to essentially the same thing, which is this intent to obstruct a federal investigation to try and make it basically impossible for federal investigators to ever obtain the documents that, again, are our documents and should not be housed at a private club or private residence because they potentially put us at threat. And Jessica, what else do the facts as laid out in this indictment suggest about, you mentioned a sense of awareness, um, about intentions here of the former president. There were a lot of questions before the unsealing of this document about what kind of fact pattern might be established here by the Department of Justice. What is it they have had to actually work with in terms of evidence um, based on the interviews that they have done, based on recordings that have been made? Um, what does all of this, as you're having a chance to digest this along with us, suggest about intentions uh, with respect to cooperating or not cooperating with the government in this investigation? It's such an important question, Elaine, and I think what it boils down to is there's overwhelming evidence that there was intent not to cooperate, and more than that, there was intent to conceal, to obstruct, Again, of course, we need to be careful that there is a difference between an indictment and a conviction, but let's be clear that the evidence here is quite strong, and it isn't just one piece of evidence. It's not just actions that the former president took. It's not just actions that he apparently asked others to take, and these allegations, which we haven't really even talked about, about the falsification of documents, where there's allegations that he lied in writing, saying you basically you have government, you have all these documents back, and they didn't. It's all of it put together. It's his public statements. It's the statements that he thought would never come out because they involved his attorney. But a federal judge found that the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applied. It's no single piece of evidence, even though there are some really damning pieces of evidence here, it's all of it together that paints a picture of willfulness, of intent. And again, that's what you need to prove these statutory crimes. All right, Jessica, stay right there. We want to bring into the conversation the CBS News political director, Finn Gomez. Uh, Finn, one of the things that we have heard from the former president leading up to this was um, that this was a witch hunt, that the FBI staged this to make it look like, uh, like it was um, worse than it was. But we're seeing here, uh, among other pieces of evidence in the indictment, things that were texted between employees of Trump and at Mar-a-Lago, where contents of some of these boxes had been spilled onto the floor. Uh, and, they, and you can see in this, according to the indictment, allegedly, that they were marked secret, that these were secret documents that had been so cavalierly thrown about. What are you now hearing from Trump's inner circle about how they're responding to the release of this indictment and how it contradicts much of what uh, the former president has used as his own defenses previously? You're absolutely right, Mona. You know, I have reached out to sources close to the campaign, and right now I'm hearing the same that what we have been hearing already, which is it's a political witch hunt, sort of falling into that same, uh, those same uh, default setting, if you will, 
of responses, but the fact of the matter is that this is not, uh, this is significant in, in what it alleges here. I mean, uh, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of uh, the United States and its allies to military attack and plans for possible retaliation response to a foreign attack. I mean, that, that, is, that is significant. That is not this, uh, to have this information, to have this classified information in boxes where, as you said, so cavalierly placed, so carelessly placed, um, according to these documents. I mean, it causes, it should cause some concern, I, I'm, I'm assuming, from some of the Republican field right now also. You have heard this reticence of his rivals to really dive in and attack and criticize the foreign president. Hi there, welcome back. Uh, hi there, welcome back. And thanks for 173K, man. And let's go see what's on mod search. What are you what are you screaming about, huh? What are you screaming about? Screaming demon. The weekend show, yeah. Anthony Davis. Giuliani exposed using secret email accounts. In federal case, 17 minutes ago. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Rudy Giuliani, it turns out, would use the name Helen and use a Gmail account called rhelen0528 at Gmail when communicating with people like Mark Meadows and others in Trump's inner circle. We are learning about this from a new filing by the lawyers for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in connection with their defamation case against Giuliani. Of course, Rudy Giuliani so flagrantly and despicably defamed Freeman and Moss, basically referring to them as drug dealers and um, saying that they stole uh, thumb drives that changed the votes and made the votes uh, turn for President Biden instead of Donald Trump. All of this completely and utterly false. Also, Rudy Giuliani produced in support of that defamatory claim a clearly doctored oh, to misrepresent the contents of what that video was. And so um, Rudy, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss brought a defamation case in Washington, D.C., federal court. It's uh, before Judge Beryl Howell. Of course, you've heard that name. She used to be the presiding judge. Uh, over uh, the various grand juries in the D.C. federal court. And one of the things that was happening in this case is that Rudy Giuliani was just utilizing the MAGA playbook, right? Delay, 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 and then he would not produce records. He would claim that the records don't exist. And Rudy Giuliani forced Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers to file multiple motions throughout 2023, Finally, when the judge essentially compelled Giuliani to produce these records, Rudy Giuliani claimed that he was too broke to produce ah. records. He claimed that he owed the electronic discovery vendor, TrustPoint, over $300,000, and he claimed that uh, he was unable to pay it. And as a result, for being $300,000-plus in arrears, he said he could not participate in discovery. So what happens next? 
Judge Beryl Howell forces Rudy Giuliani to submit a declaration under penal perjury about Rudy Giuliani's financial condition um, to demonstrate proof that he is literally bankrupt and had to be a detailed uh, financial statement under penalty of perjury. And then the day before that was due, Rudy Giuliani submitted a new declaration claiming that he found the $300,000 plus, and he is able to participate in Discovery now. And one of the reasons Rudy Giuliani was doing this is that the deadlines for what's called fact discovery before you get into expert discovery where the parties exchange emails and text messages and other documents in their custody and control, as well as subpoena third-party documents, that deadline was set to expire, I think it was sometime in, in late May or early June, so Rudy Giuliani was trying to run out the clock, and Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers were very, very smart at all times. They continued to call him out, and so the judge, federal judge Beryl Howell, was intimately aware of this. And so what was Rudy Giuliani trying to hide? Well, I think like all MAGA Republicans, uh, everything. Um, including the fact that he would use this email address, rhelen0528 at gmail, um, when he would communicate with people like Mark Meadows. Um, according to this new report, and it's in the uh, filing, Rudy Giuliani used an email address with the name Helen in some of his communications about his efforts to oppose former President Trump's 2020 election loss. As, la as late as a 2020, uh, late 2020 email sent to Mark Meadows about a plan that Trump allies hoped could impose martial law after the election was CC'd to Helen and Lucy, so they were clearly using uh, code names there. Um, a message included in that case indicates Giuliani has rhelen0528 and was cc'd on discussions about an executive order that some Trump allies believe could be used as a pretext to seize voting machines and even impose martial law following Trump's election loss. Giuliani, who's the former uh, mayor of New York and personal attorney to Trump, um, had discussed his use of the email address rhelen0528 at gmail in the court appearances as part of this case, as part of this defamation case brought by Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. And according to the case documents that were just made public this past week, the address is one of seven that is at the center of the fight over documents in that case. Quote, that was my main Gmail account since I had Gmail. Giuliani said in a deposition on March 1, 2023, and somehow others were created for specific purposes, but that would cover 95% of my email I had, and probably every important one. Giuliani's mother, who passed away in 2002, was named Helen. That is why uh, the email address uh, is that, but he would be using this alias to communicate as part of his plot to overthrow the election in addition to being highly relevant in connection with Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's case, as that's the main repository of where Giuliani would send and receive communications, certainly also going to be helpful for Special Counsel Jack Smith to uh, prove intent, to prove uh, the willfulness, because why else would you try to hide and cover it up?
if you thought that everything you were doing was above board. And certainly this revelation will be very, very, very important for uh, the Fulton County District Attorney, Fawny Willis. Here's just a brief background on the discovery dispute. I think it's interesting, so let me read from the court documents. It says, Plaintiffs filed a motion to compel defendant Giuliani only after he spent nearly a year avoiding the most basic discovery obligations. During that time, defendant Giuliani refused to provide any clarity as to his preservation, collection, search, and production efforts, offering only vague, inconsistent, incomplete, and half-hearted claims about what he had or had not done in discovery, and what email accounts, messaging applications, social media, or phone numbers he used during the relevant time period. He did not provide that information even after the court ordered him to do so to avoid a motion to compel, and instead indicated his to-date efforts were sufficient based on demonstrably incomplete searches, using that term generously, of email extensions of whatever pre-April 2021 emails were located in TrustPoint and post-April 2021 content located in unspecified devices and social media. Only in opposition to plaintiff's motion to compel did defendant Giuliani claim for the first time that he was now financially unable to engage in any further discovery. Defendant Giuliani maintained his claims of inability to pay throughout a three-hour hearing on the motion to compel that the court held on May 19, 2023, subsequent to which the court reserved ruling on plaintiff's motion to compel and ordered defendant Giuliani to first, one, file a declaration detailing his preservation, collection, and search efforts, the location and the data of potentially responsive documents, the specific data located in TrustPoint, and his search of those locations and data, and two, produce all financial information requested in plaintiff's uh, request for production of documents, number 41 and 42, and documentation to support his estimated costs to search TrustPoint. On the evening of Friday, May 26, counsel for defendant Giuliani notified plaintiff of the, quote, significant development that defendant Giuliani has been able to procure third-party funding to cure the arrearage to search the TrustPoint docs. Defendants subsequently filed the reconsideration motion as to the portion of the May 19th order compelling the production of financial documents and submitted the declaration to purportedly respond to the court's May 19th order in which he professes a desire to search for responsive records but still apparently only those located in TrustPoint. In other words, after requesting the court and plaintiffs expend considerable time and resources to address his claims of financial distress, defendant Giuliani has withdrawn that excuse and returned the parties to virtually the same position that necessitated plaintiffs to ask the court for permission from, uh, to move to compel in the first place, and defendant now seeks to undo the court's May 19th order requiring him to produce his financial records. The reconsideration motion provides no basis in law why the court should consider its order or to why reconsider its order or to accept the same objection that it previously found insufficient. As for the defendant Giuliani's declaration, it does not sufficiently address the court's May 19th order and further affirms the court's May 31 order requiring defendant Giuliani to engage a professional vendor to preserve, collect, and search for all materials responsive to plaintiff's request for production, uh, 
Whatever, quote, efforts defendant Giuliani describes in his declaration provide little clarity into what data and sources, if any, he has preserved, collected, and searched to date, and what defendant Giuliani does not say in his declaration, coupled with the representations his counsel and he made at the motion to compel hearing, demonstrate the insufficiency of any such efforts. It is apparent that defendant Giuliani has not attempted to preserve or collect data from all potential sources of responsive documents. He has instead relied on whatever data the government purportedly seized and whichever of the data is stored in trust point, the contents of which defendant Giuliani does not appear to know and has not explained to the court. And defendant Giuliani's personal search efforts are demonstrably incomplete because he did not locate and produce responsive documents that were produced to plaintiffs by third parties. The court has rightly compelled defendant Giuliani to engage a professional vendor to attempt to cure his own lack of discovery efforts to date. And in that motion, it goes on to talk about, for example, all the other email accounts that Giuliani would use, how he would go and hide his emails using the R. Helen address, all of the bad faith efforts that Giuliani has engaged in. And one important thing of note, um, on June 5th, the court issued a minute order that granted the party's motion for an order altering the existing scheduling order, and it pushed all of the dates back as a result of uh, Giuliani's uh, conduct. So, you know, it's one of the things when you litigate these cases with Trump and MAGA, they play games and games and games. They abuse the process. They abuse the fact that courts like when parties are collegial and you know, voluntarily share the appropriate documents. They don't play by those rules. So you have to do just like just Republicans. what uh, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss's lawyers did here, and a great find in discovery, of course, that Giuliani uses. The ends justifies the means. At gmail dot com uh, uh, to send messages relating to the uh, insurrection. He would refer to himself as Helen in those messages. As I said, Jack Smith probably very intrigued by this as. Uh, <laughs> as Phony Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers yeah, thanks to your support. Everybody. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch and wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe. The Fabric of Space Time with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Damage poses on migrants. So shit. Red state governors are competing with each other to see who can be most cruel and callous with the Damage life of board. undocumented migrants. This week's winner is Greg Abbott, who announced that he had just dropped off of the first bus, implying that there will be others of migrants in L.A. So basically, he loaded a bunch of human beings up onto a bus. He carted them, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 miles away. Gabbit and ah, shit. DOJ demand And brutally inhuman of new immigrants to this country.
and drop them off somewhere. And that's pretty much it. And he says, L.A. is a city migrants seek to go to, particularly now as leaders approved its self-declared sanctuary status. So L.A.'s cool. They said that they don't despise migrants. So whatever, just go there. We don't care. And this apparently is true. This did actually happen. Karen Bass, mayor of L.A., said in a statement that more than 40 people, and I'm glad that that word is in there, to remind everyone that they're people, she says it's, they were dropped off. She says it's abhorrent that an American elected official is using human beings as pawns in his cheap political games. Texas says now they've sent 21,600 migrants to sanctuary cities all across the country. They probably don't know the exact number, and, and I understand why they don't believe that these are people. They're not worth actually tracking. They just dropped them at Union Station. That's it. A human rights organization thankfully came and helped these human beings, brought them to a church. You know, a church is a place where, like, people supposedly have political values. In this case, they did. In the case of Abbott, they just pretend that they do, but then they treat them like garbage. Can you imagine if Jesus had seen the loading up of this bus? Anyway, Viviana, what do you think? They were chill. Go Midas Mighty. Children on that bus too, John. Yeah. There were children on that bus. Uh, I just, I think it's Operation Wetback 2023. This is something that the United States has done for a long, long time. And it's a real political, um, you know, tactic Wait, what did you do? to try to drum up Sends my to Los Angeles. Somewhere. And that's pretty much it. And he says, LA is a city. Okay, we're going to pull up all the way. With the life of undocumented migrants, this week's winner is Greg Abbott, who announced that he had just dropped off of the first bus, implying that there will be others of migrants in LA. So basically, he loaded a bunch of human beings up onto a bus. Fucking human trafficking. Where's LAPD when you need it? Drop them off somewhere. And that's pretty much it. And he says, LA is a city migrants seek to go to, particularly now as leaders approved its self declared sanctuary status. So LA's cool. They said that they what don't do despise LA's migrants. Cool. So whatever, just go there. We don't care. And this apparently is true. This did actually happen. Karen Bath. Mayor of L.A. said in a statement that more than 40 people, and I'm glad that that word is in there, to remind everyone that they're people, she says it's, they were dropped off. She says it's abhorrent that an American elected official is using human beings as pawns in his cheap political games. Texas says now they've sent 21,600 migrants to what? sanctuary cities all across the country. They probably don't know the exact number, and, wow. and I understand why they don't believe that these are people. They're not worth why actually the tracking. They just dropped them at Union Station. That? That's it. A human rights organization thankfully came and helped these human beings, brought them to a church. You know, a church is a place where, like, people supposedly have political values. In this case, they did. In the case of Abbott, they just pretend that they do, but then they treat them like garbage. Can you imagine if Jesus had seen the loading up of this bus? 
Anyway, Viviana, what do you think? There were children on that bus too, John. Yeah. There were children on that bus. Uh, I just, I think it's Operation Wetback 2023. This is something that the United States has done for a long, long time. And it's a real political, um, you know, tactic to try to drum up, you know, sort of favor with your with your party. Karen Bass said it perfectly. It's just using these people as a, a political pawn. Um, just to inform, uh, Union Station here in Los Angeles is a train hub and a bus hub. Um, it's not a safe place for children and kids, to families to just be dropped off and not have a plan. It's actually quite despicable and disgusting. But like I said, the United States has a long-standing history of carting, immigrants left yeah. and right and citizens mind you operation wetback actually took anybody who looked to be mexican and shipped them to put them on a train and put them in mexico abbott wishes he could do that but the constitution doesn't let him do that so now he's got to put him somewhere else and so that's what he's doing and it's it's sick it's important it's horrible and we're going to keep seeing it and hopefully there are many sanctuary cities like Los Angeles, I'm, I'm proud to reside in, that we don't treat people like that. We try to have some sort of plan to, you know, treat people humanely. 100%. Yeah, treat them like actual people. Treat them like, you know, when we were reading those religious texts growing up, one or two words remained, like actually had an effect on us. Anyway, Governor Abbott needs Jesus. That's what I'll end with. Check out the Damage Report podcast each day, wherever you get your podcasts, whether Pocket Casts or Stitcher or iTunes. You can join me as I give you the news and stories you want with a range of co-hosts and interview guests jumping in on the fun each day. Again, that's the Damage Report, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get them at iTunes, don't forget to rate and review. Sometimes I'll read them live on the show. Look his eyes in. Anyway, how are you guys doing out there? Still alive? <laughs> oh, good for you. <clears throat> oh, with all the beeping noises, we should um, put together some stand-up. We're releasing this episode of Brain Goats as a special Father's Day bonus. I caught up with my friend Fred Guttenberg in between events on his book tour. He dialed in from a hotel room in New York, so his video quality isn't what you're used to on this show, but I think you'll appreciate why we're hosting it anyway. Fred's daughter, Jamie, was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018. I don't know where Fred found the strength. But in the years since that tragedy, he has become an unstoppable force in the gun safety movement. From confronting Marco Rubio on stage in the days following his daughter's murder, 
to driving real legislative change in state houses across the country and in Washington, D.C., Fred has been tireless in fighting to protect families like mine. I cannot think of anyone I'd rather talk to and learn from on this Father's Day than a dad who has been such an inspiration to me and millions of others. Again, I hope you'll forgive the video quality if you listen to what Fred has to say. I promise you'll be inspired. And to the dads watching, happy Father's Day. I'm Ken Harbaugh. What could possibly go wrong? This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter Jamie was killed in the 2018 Parkland shooting. Since then, Fred has become one of the most impactful and inspiring advocates for gun safety. His new book, American Carnage, dismantles many of the myths we hear today about guns and gun violence. Fred, welcome back to the hey, hey, Ken, how are you, man? Good to see you. I'm good, I'm good. I gotta tell you, though, I have never been so fixated on a book's table of contents. Uh, but when I first opened American Carnage, I got stuck here for like 20 minutes uh, because it's just astonishing the number of myths that you break down that have so dominated the conversation about guns in America. And I'm wondering what gave you the idea to structure the book in this way so it's basically a field manual to help people challenge the lies that sustain the gun industry? Listen, it's a great question. Um, you know, my daughter should be turning 20 this July. She was killed just over five years ago. And, when, you know, after she was killed, I became really um, energized in this movement to do something about reducing gun violence. And one of the things that became immediately clear to me is we've spent the past 20 or 30 years creating policy and electing people on lies. I mean, true myths. And it is amazing to me how deeply ingrained these lies and myths became. But because of how deeply ingrained they were, combating them, and we became a challenge because there were so many. And so about two years ago, my co-author, Tom Gabor, came to me and said, you know, after the Parkland shooting, I started work on a project, and then it paused, and I want to revisit it. And it's taking on the lies and myths of the gun lobby. And I immediately said, count me in, you know, um, because there's not been a real, call it a manual, to do that until this book. And, and here's why that matters. Um, I told you my daughter should turn 20 in July. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, it's not a long time, there were only 200 million guns in America. Today, 20 years later, we are over 400 million plus the additional ghost guns. 20 years ago, AR-15 sales were less than 2% of all guns sold. Today, 25% of all guns sold. 
I literally just told you everything you need to know to understand gun violence in America, and everything else are the lies and the myths that actually put us in this place where we created the gun violence we now see in only 20 years. As an example of just how ingrained those myths are, I mean, I don't have to make it very far in that table of contents. Myth number two stopped me cold because it's one that I have just taken for granted for for the past couple of years. It's that an increasing percentage of Americans are buying guns. Turns out that's a it's myth, a lie. and it's a myth that serves. It's a lie that serves the gun industry. Yeah because it makes it seem like gun culture is spreading. And as someone who feels like I am pretty well versed in the nefariousness of the NRA and the lies they tell, even that one got me. So for anyone who thinks they know this landscape, they still need to buy this book. But can you deconstruct that one? Because, and we could go through all 37, we're not yeah. going to, but just on, let's stop on number two. How did we get to the point where we've been convinced that an increasing percentage, and nuance is important here, an increasing percentage of Americans are buying guns, which is missing. So, so actually, you know what? Let me start with myth number one and lead into number two. Okay. Because myth number one talks about who we are and have been as a country. And as a country, we've always had gun safety laws. We've had a lot of gun owners. You've got to remember, as a country, you know, we had hunters and people who use guns for sport and hunting through our history, but we've always had gun safety laws. And, you know, one of the things that happened is in 1977, a guy by the name of Harlan Carter took over the NRA um, at a mutiny in uh, their, their convention in Cincinnati that year. Um, and Harlan Carter, what people didn't know about him was he's a convicted murderer, uh, but he changed a vowel in his name. And so people didn't know it. And he is the guy who pushed America into this place where we were, in our history, a gun safety country. A lot of gun owners spread out across the country, a lot of them, who believed in gun safety and responsible firearms ownership. Harlan Carter realized that the things that drove gun ownership in the country, things like hunting and sport, were actually declining. And so he needed to create new markets. Uh, and he started to push America into a place through the NRA, through a lot of money on political people who believed him, and on studies that started creating all of these myths. Studies that really started to treat America as you're either a good guy or a bad guy. You know? And, and all the bad guys already own guns. And so all the good guys, you need to own guns too to defend yourself. And we, and, and, and the whole notion was we are now a country awash in good guys and bad guys who are gonna have to own guns. Bad guys because they wanna be bad and good guys because you gotta protect yourself. But the truth is there weren't as many um, instances of, of this bad guys with guns attacking good guys with guns every day. And, and most Americans were feeling secure. Now, the problem is, while it's a declining number of Americans who own guns, there are more guns. And 
and you know, we double the arsenal. And in recent years, especially like starting around COVID, we've seen the percentage of Americans becoming first-time home buyers. Uh, gun, I'm sorry, first-time gun owners and bringing guns into their homes increasing. Uh, because of the success of the NRA pushing this idea that we're all at risk of these bad guys. Uh, it's crazy how they've used lies and myths to literally build an industry. And in 20 years, okay, these lies and myths, you know, the, 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 the types of things, you know, the numbers of defensive uses of guns, okay, it's a lie. It was a pure made-up lie based on fake data. But the myth took hold. If you, I'll, I'll start the sentence. You'll finish it. Okay. Think about this sentence. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And please tell us where that phrase. That is. phrase started five days after the Sandy Hook shooting. We all think that we've heard this forever, right? That it's just been a part of American culture. That notion. It started after the Sandy Hook shooting, Wayne LaPierre, five days after. That was his response to Sandy Hook. He turned Sandy Hook, the NRA turned Sandy Hook, into a gun sales bonanza. But the truth is, we still don't see the numbers of American families owning weapons that we had in the past. And we do see a concentration of dangerous weapons in a smaller percentage of Americans. Um, and we do see, because there are so many weapons, being sold in ways that don't require background checks and other um, you know, ways to ensure we're keeping them out of the hands of those who intend harm, how easy it is for bad guys to actually get a gun. Yeah. That political shift you described at the NRA starting in 77 is, is something I lived through. I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout in the 70s and 80s, and I remember the NRA pushing marksmanship yeah. and gun safety uh, to to Americans of all ages, but in particular the Boy Scouts, yeah. right? It was about being safe with your firearms and learning how to shoot, and I think if you go way back, it was about preparing uh, young men in America to join the military and, and be better shots. That pivot in the 70s has done so much damage. But I wonder if if our focus on the NRA sometimes uh, leads us to take our, our eye off the ball. You'll know better than anybody, so I'm asking you. If we take down the NRA, aren't there other <laughs> extremist organizations waiting in the wings? I mean, aren't there right now organizations even farther to the right yeah. than, than the, the NRA? What's out there lurking in the shadows when all of our ire is focused on this admittedly extremely toxic and, and damaging What a, a, a great question. And, and, for, and, and, the re, and your question is actually the reason you, as a general rule of thumb, hear me talk less about the NRA these days because it's the NRA is really the reason we are where we are but other organizations now exist but even worse than that it's the legacy of the work that they did that we now need to live with and what I mean by that is they put a lot of money into electing a lot of people who believe what it was that the NRA was saying and those people currently serve and so while 
As back in 2018, before the Parkland shooting, these people were taking NRA money and loving it and wearing the A rating pin. None of them wear the A rating pin anymore, but they don't need to. They really believe the message. And so the legacy of the NRA and the success of it with elections is something that carries the, the, the work of those who, who want to sell more guns forward. And we need to defeat those people. We need to elect them. Uh, you know, we need to fire them from office and elect new people. But the other legacy of the NRA and those gun groups, which I think is maybe the most concerned, has to do with the courts. You know, you don't need a gun group um, focused on elections as much anymore when they're filing lawsuits. And, and they're using the courts to literally reinterpret what the Second Amendment says, to literally reinterpret laws that we had on the books for, for the, our history um, to make it easier to get a gun. And I'll just use an example. Um, you know the Bruin case from last year, Second Amendment case. That was not a lawsuit over some new law that people are disagreeing about. It wasn't anything like that. It was a lawsuit over a law that was over 100 years old, okay? On the books, because we always were a history of gun safety laws. They, but that law was so pivotal to help the states pass legislation that would keep it um, so that those who intend harm have a harder time gaining access to a gun. It struck out a law that was over 100 years old. That's what the Bruin case did. Um, you, I mean, I can't make it up, but that's what it did. And when I when I think of the Supreme Court, and I, and I think of the Second Amendment, I'll give you just one more example. 2008, the Heller decision. You all remember that? The people focused on a lot of what Scalia said back then. One of the things that may be the most meaningful part of the Heller decision is a phrase that now gets attached to the Second Amendment as if it's always been there. But it came out of that Heller decision. Common use. And the reason why common use matters is following the hell of decision. Remember I told you in 2003, AR-15 sales were less than 2% of all guns sold? The, AR the, the, the assault weapons ban ended in 2004. That didn't cause a huge increase in, in, in sales of assault weapons. It really started after the hell of decision. In 08, assault weapons sales were about 4 or 5% of all guns sold. The big spike happened after hell of and that common use language. And common use said, if a weapon is is the most popular in its class and in common use, you can't restrict it in essence. I mean, that's, that is not a legally uh, perfect answer, but that is my in a nutshell answer. Um, and the industry went on a manufacturing binge following the hell of decision. They literally used the Supreme Court decision to develop a business strategy, which remember back then, they said these weapons are for hunting and sport, but they started manufacturing far beyond the size of those markets and needing to create new marketing strategies to sell them, including marketing to kids. 
to the point where now here we are 15 years later, only 15 years, and they're now 25% of all guns sold because of that Supreme Court decision, common use, and we now may see this year the Supreme Court in another decision conclude that you can't ban these weapons because they're in common use. And again, this is happening in 15 years. This isn't our history, and people need to understand that. And because it's literally all clustered in this really recent 15, 20-year time, we can fix this with our vote, and we better vote. You do an incredible job at uncovering some of that history for those who think this world we're stuck in has always existed. I mean, you go back to the Wild West, and there were better controls on firearms in towns back yeah. then than, than there are today. Like, the, the Second Amendment is, is, is my thing as a, as a legal guy. But talk a little bit about, like, gun safety in, in, in the old days. I mean, you couldn't just walk into a saloon with a, with a hip cannon, right? No. <laughs> they had way more common sense back then than we do today. The, it's about the money and marketing. The wild, wild west is not the way people seem to think of it today. You know, they actually had laws on the books to prevent people from just simply walking into public places with guns and using them, you know? And it was not weird that people expected that, and it continued. I mean, from our founding all the way to 1977, the notion of, of America as a country with the Second Amendment and responsible gun owners and gun safety was not unexpected. You know, we were able to do both, have our have our Second Amendment rights, have our Americans who own guns, but also understand the importance of being responsible and understand how we need to take every step to keep them out of the hands of those who intend harm to someone else, someone else or others. This is a really recent thing where we just sort of moved away from that and all for the purpose of selling more guns for an industry that has put a cost of doing business on the lives of people like my daughter. You referenced that sales strategy as including marketing to kids. And it's not just, you know, an ad in, in a section of a paper that, that young people read. They've actually made AR-15s where the yeah. stock will fit in, like, the show. And they, what was the one example I'm thinking of that they actually renamed it? The, the, uh, the uh, I think it was AR-15 Junior, um, and, you know, they've also made them in really cute little colors, so kids will like them. You have uh, Daniel Defense, who sold the gun that was used in the Ovalde shooting, who literally had advertisements showing how important it was to get little kids started shooting this weapon. Um, you know, listen, I am the only Parkland parent who still has an active lawsuit trying to sue the gun manufacturer. And the reason why um, none of the others have joined, it's a really risky proposition because PLACA, um, you know, if you, if you lose, so PLACA is a, is a federal law that shields the manufacturer from liability. And if you sue them and lose, they can sue you. For damages, and they have done that in the past and bankrupted 
families who lost loved ones to gun violence. Um, and, and, my and this is not a, a blanket law that protects industry writ large from frivolous lawsuits. We're talking about the gun industry in particular as the only industry protected. in America that has a special carve yes. out. Go ahead. Yes. Now, um, the Sandy Hook families were able to actually successfully have a PLACA claim that got to a settlement. Part of the reason why is they had a state law that gave the ability to um, kind of find a window through this deceptive marketing practices. And the reason why the, the manufacturer ultimately settled was that was better than having to release all of the discovery and documents that would have become public. And so in Florida, I unfortunately don't have uh, the ability to have a beneficial state law. In fact, Florida has a statute that's even more onerous than PLACA. And to file my PLACA claim, I have to first get through the Florida statute, which here we are five years later and I'm still trying, but I have a claim going to the Florida Supreme Court um, and we'll see where that goes. But what I've done is the lawsuit that I would like to file, I've actually um, filed a claim with, it at, um, with the FTC. So, because I want, what I want is, I've we've been able to show how the person who shot my daughter was in fact being influenced by this market. And I want those CEOs under oath, I want those documents, I want the tobacco moment. Um, I'm asked, I've already been talking to members of the Senate who do have subpoena power um, to hold a hearing using the FTC claims and calling those CEOs under oath. The truth is, because you don't have 60 votes in the Senate, they can issue the subpoena, but they can't enforce it. Um, so the executives don't have to come. It would look bad if they didn't, but they would probably rather look bad then release the discovery because the discovery is damning. We can prove, I have no doubt, if we get them under oath and we see the documents, we can, I am certain we will see the business strategy that led us to where we are today. Thanks for watching, everyone. We've got a quick message from our show sponsor. But first, I've got a favor to ask. Growing a show like Burn the Boats depends on you. There was a time when thoughtful interviews with interesting guests could stand on their own. But these days, the algorithm is everything. The recommendations that show up in the feeds of YouTube viewers and podcast listeners depend on the reviews that shows like this get. So please give us a thumbs up, follow this channel, and if you're up for it, please consider clicking on the link to the podcast page and leaving us a five-star review. It makes a huge difference. Thanks. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted boosted energy, immune system support, and a supplement that actually tastes great. I take AG1 before starting my day, and it makes me feel ready to take on anything. I'm doing something good for my body, giving it the nutrition it craves. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different. The ingredients are super high quality. I noticed right away that it improved my energy levels and made me feel great. AG1 makes it easier to take the highest quality supplements, period. Just one daily serving covers my day's nutritional bases, 
and supports long-term gut health with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. It's one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day. AG1 is that easy. If I could recommend one additional thing to me to take care of my health, it's this AG1 by Athletic Greens. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust it so much. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash burn the boats. That's athleticgreens.com slash burn the boats. You won't regret it. I hear you say a lot to people wrestling with like the confusing fire hose effects on this. <laughs> Focus on the motivation. Yeah. I know what your motivations are. You want to keep <clears throat> You want to keep what happened to your family from ever happening to another family again, to my family. Thank you. But the comparison to the motivations of the people you're you're going after should be clear as that. And for the gun industry, it's happening. Listen, that to me is what every American should pay attention to, is the motivation of who is asking you to listen on this topic. There are a lot of people like me, survivors, families affected by gun violence, activist groups, and even politicians who are trying to do whatever they can to stop the next shooting. That's our motivation. We just, we're not trying to punish responsible gun owners. We're not anti-Second Amendment. We're not gun grabbers. That's just all part of the lies and the myths, which is why I also am saying a lot, let's stop listening to the liars, okay? Because that's all that that is. Our motivation is to stop the next one, to stop a parent from understanding what I do. Now, compare that to those who spread the lies, whether you're part of the industry or you're a political person. Okay? Their motivation is to help that industry. Their motivation is to sell more guns because that helps the industry, even if you're a politician. Your help and support of that industry brings you donations and other things that you will value. You're part of that. So I am on the right side on this issue. 80% of America agrees with me. This is not a question of even whether or not my stance is popular. I, I, I suspect if you do a poll, my stance on gun owners, which is, again, supported by 80% of America, is more popular than apple pie, okay? And, and, and so this, this is not a question of whether Americans agree in convincing Americans. They are convinced. It's an issue of how we put ourselves in a place on this issue and others where a minority is managing to thwart the will of the majority. That's the question. And the answer is, if the majority, if those who clearly agree with me on this, sit on the sidelines in the next election, you are part of the problem. You can't sit home, you need to vote. You said this in a recent MSNBC interview. I'll just say to every American voter listening right now, vote in 2024. I don't care if you think it's for a candidate, if it's a candidate who says they have a plan to be part of reducing gun violence, who's going to be part of a woman's right to choose, who's going to be part of defending freedom and democracy, vote. What strikes me about that 
is your linking of these issues? Because they, they're not unrelated, right? They're not. Um, listen, you don't need to be uh, a rocket scientist to look at the different sides here. The, this, the, the political parties, um, the current state of the Republican Party, it, it's not a, a responsible governing entity at this point. They're just not. Okay, and there's a lot of Republicans who will tell you the same thing, whether it's my friend Joe Walsh or Liz Cheney. These are not Democrats. These are conservative people telling you to vote for Democrats because they understand there's there's something different going on right now. And, and that they, they want the Republican Party back. But before you can get there, you have to thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly beat this party that exists. And and so for me, I, I, when I look at who it is that supports gun safety, they tend to be the same people who support what the majority of Americans say they want, which is other things like the right to choose, expanded voting rights, protection of environment. These are not minority views. These are majority majority views, but they are being held up by a minority. Oh, and I'll add to that, protection of our democracy and our constitution as it exists today. It is this, the, 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 those who support reducing gun violence support all those other things. You can just, I, I'll make that as a blanket statement. I know it's true. And those who unfortunately want expanded gun rights um, tend to be the same who will tell you uh, they, their vote didn't, it was, was flawed, or will tell you a woman doesn't have her freedoms that she always thought she had. Um, you know, it's clear. And, and so uh, here's what I will say to the majority of Americans, okay? What the other side has figured out is how to use language to keep a base that's what they are, base, but they're about 30, 35% of the country, probably, voting. And they will vote. They are hardcore voters right now. And the other side knows it. And, and, and that's why they can't pull away from that base right now. The, what do you say to the Republican representatives who throw up their hands? And this literally happened on the Capitol steps after, I think it was... All day might have been the Allen, Texas shooting. There's going to be another one tomorrow. And they say we can't do anything. Um, I will say that response is what's going to get you fired. Okay? And, and I'll use an example. Um, you know, just this week in Jacksonville, Florida, a Republican stronghold, um, Donna Deegan won for mayor. And no, nobody, Democrat. yeah, Democrat, and nobody expected it. And she didn't win because of Democrats. She won because Republicans in large numbers voted for her, and no party affiliates in really large numbers voted for her. And I think you're going to see that across the country. So if you can't be a part of solving the issue of gun violence, you should start your look working on your resume and prepare to be fired because Americans are going to vote. And and 
I will just simply say to Americans, okay, you have to vote. Don't, this 24 is the election where you need to get over needing to fall in love with a candidate. Where you need to get over, I either love everything about the Democrat or I'm not voting for them. You need to focus on, if they support reducing gun violence, if they support the right to choose, if they support democracy, you don't need to love them, but you better vote for them. We gotta talk about Florida. <laughs> brought it up twice now because you've got a governor who may well become the next president of the United States, but even if not, I feel like there is this race to the bottom in this competition with the former president, Trump. You see it on the, the abortion issue, yep. walking back that that how many weeks the ban's gonna gonna kick in. Uh, I'm afraid you're going to see it on gun extremism as well. When you get two egos like that competing for a radical base, which is a sliver of the popular vote, it, it leads to terrible things. <laughs> as a Floridian, give us your give, give us your take on Governor DeSantis. Governor DeSantis will never be president of the United States. Uh, he is not loved in Florida the way people think, and certainly not by 19 points. What he understood clearly is the importance of his 30 to 35% showing up at the polls, and he got them out, and they voted almost completely. And Democrats sat home because they didn't love their candidate, because they didn't feel inspired you know, um, if you want to be inspired and you want to fall in love, find other ways to do that, but you got to vote. And the Democrats didn't. That is the reason that he won his reelection in the numbers that he did. And it is the reason that he and Trump are fighting over that base that they know is going to vote. They, they figure that is their power base. Now, the thing about DeSantis, um, He's an exceptionally weird guy. And and I know him, and I've been in the same room with him. And he is an exceptionally weird guy who cannot and will not perform on the big stage. And in live candid moments, we've all already seen this. Um, so he will not be the nominee. Um, whether or not it's Trump, I, I'm still not convinced. And if it is Trump, it may have to happen from a prison cell. But, but, but it won't be DeSantis. Um, I will tell you, um, I'm watching the rumblings of a guy like Yunkin, and he gets me nervous because he's as bad as them, but he looks prettier being bad. You know, he's not hes not as scary looking or sounding, um, you know, but it won't be DeSantis. Got it. Uh, I gotta plug the book one more time. What? are uh, some of the myths that surprised you? Or, or did you have this all wired before you put pen to paper? You know, none of it surprised. Um, I think the disconnect between our history and what people think of who we are now when it comes to our relationship with guns, just how big the disconnect is and how really recent it is, but how strongly it's taken hold 
shocked me. Um, you know, because again, this is not our history. But it really, but 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 you talk to anybody now, it feels like it is, but it isn't. And I think that's that to me is one of the more shocking things about the book is how big that disconnect is. Um, the the ability of the industry to use completely flawed data um, on things like defensive uses of guns to uh, successfully create the image that we are a country who has to constantly have um, guns to protect ourselves from those, the bad guys who are going to shoot us. It shocked me how successfully they did that because the data is crap. It is, it is really, really bad. Uh, but 